0: To come to the scripture, let's pray. Father, I pray for us uh, that you'd help us. You say that your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We trust you in that, therefore. We trust that as we listen to it read and as we think about it, that you'll lead us. Most especially lead us to you, so that we'd know you most especially to lead us in the life to which you've called us. And on this morning, of course, lead us to your table. So we pray. Uh, that you would grant grace to us um, as we listen. And this, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to James in chapter 1. James chapter 1. I want to begin reading with verse 18, which I know is in the middle of a paragraph for most of your Bibles. Verse 18 through the end of the chapter. James chapter 1, please. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Knowing this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, I want, if God will help me, just to take up these last two sentences. We've been through the rest, review a bit. But to take these last two uh, sentences. Um, here there's a, a summary that James gives us, really, Um and i want to summarize these two verses he tells us that there is a religion that deceives that's false if you will and there is religion that's profitable that's true that's worthwhile not worthless so he's making a contrast here in these last two verses about religion that there's there's a religion that is uh, that deceives a person's heart and there's and that religion is worthless and then there's also A religion before God that is pure and undefiled. And he he gives us these three indicators, expressions, if you will, that are true religion. Um, He says that you have a tongue that is bridled and that you visit orphans and widows in their affliction and that you keep oneself unstained from the world. We could think about it that we're supposed to control our tongues if our religion is true. Uh, we're to uh, be compassionate towards others if our religion is true. Um, and we're to live clean lives, if you will, if our religion is true. This sense of, of bridling one's tongue, this sense of visiting widows and orphans in their distress, and also then living a life that's unstained um, by... The world. Let me play Captain Obvious for a minute and just kind of think about this with you. First of all, uh, James uses the word religion and religious. Now for us, 21st century, probably starting mid to later 20th, 20th century, the word religion took a negative spin, especially amongst Christians. Christians um, are apt to say things like Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. And what we mean by that, the way we're using the word religion in a negative kind of way, is in the sense that it's heartless. It's simply the outward form of something. Um, kind of like if you think about ancient Israel, when God would say to them, I, I, I just reject your sacrifices, even though he commanded them to give sacrifices. And, and, and we would say, well, for ancient Israel, that, those sac- it became religious, just a religious act to them. There was no heart in it really, or when, when Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount about our praying and our fasting and our giving, and He says we should do it in secret. Why? Because it's to come from the heart. And so when Christians say that that Christianity is a religion, what we say this is just doing these things, but it comes from being related. What we do comes from being related to Jesus. And so it's it's really the heart. Other people say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, right? So we, we sort of like the spiritual side of that, but not the religious side of that. That's what people on airplanes always tell me when they find out I'm a pastor. Uh, they say, I'm not, re- I'm not religious, but, but I'm spiritual, as if I'm to be impressed with that. Uh, uh, why they should try to impress me, I don't know. That's why I really never talk to people on airplanes unless they talk first. Uh, and so, you know, I sit down first, try to get my seat and my heads in a book as quickly as possible. I know for some of you bless you, as you evangelize on airplanes. You should, and uh, I probably shouldn't. But anyway, um, some of you like to do that, um, and you should do that. But, but this sense of, of, of being spiritual, I, I'm not religious. I, I don't have this, this form of religion, this institutional thing to which I adhere. But, but I know that there's something bigger than me that's, that's beyond my own senses, and I, that, that's what I'm spiritual, of course. And, and we go, well, yes, of course, Christianity is spiritual. It has to be, because it's of the spirit. Paul says if you're, a, if, you're, if, you're, if you're not a believer then you don't have the Spirit but you have the Spirit you're a spiritual person, right? Because the Holy Spirit has come upon you and, and, and reconciled you to God and so it's a spiritual thing we get that. All I want to say is that don't don't let the word religion hold you up as you read this passage because James doesn't mean it like that at all for James there's true religion and false religion worthless religion and and profitable religion true and false and so forth uh, so he, he's using it in that sense of of just what it means to express that which you believe Right. And, and the reason that James uses this word religion and religious in this particular passage is probably more than you need to know this morning. But but the reason he does that is is because that's how the word was used commonly. It was used commonly in his day of, of, of the expression of the outward form or the outward expression of one's faith, what one believed, whatever that whatever that would have been. And he said there's 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 right expressions Things we just expect. If you're really a believer in in Jesus, probably the best definition of uh, religion, as um, James uses it, is this. I found from a commentator who writes, "Religion is a comprehensive word for the specific ways in which a heart relationship." to God is expressed. And so that's what James is trying to get. If you really believe in Jesus, if your heart's really been changed, then you should see these things. And if you don't, it isn't true. These things should follow. And so really these two sentences, let me read them. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained uh, from the world. This, 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 These two sentences in the whole flow of what James is writing serves the purpose of, on the one hand, summing up what he said and also then setting up what he's going to say. You see, each of these things, how we use our tongues, um, being compassionate and living a holy life, those three things, that will take us through the rest of James. In fact, we could actually end here and we could talk to them for weeks just about these three things. And interestingly enough, we will, because that's exactly what James will talk about. Um, many of you, when I when I said that I was going to take up James after we finished Titus, uh, you, you, you came to me and said, oh man, I hate the section that he writes about the tongue. And so you've been anticipating this already. And and so when he says we need to bridle the tongue, you're anticipating chapter 3, the first number of verses, because he talks about there our tongues. Notice he puts in verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, We all stumble in many ways, and if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. And so for James, what we say controls everything. And then he goes on, and we'll look at that in a minute, but... Because he talks about the tongue in ways that we, that, that's convicting to us. Oh, yes. So he's going to talk about that. And this whole idea about how we treat those in need. How we treat the poor. He's going to visit that again. Chapter 2. The whole uh, beginning of chapter 2 is, is is this. How do we treat the rich as opposed to the poor? And all of that. Are we compassionate people? He'll raise that. And then about keeping ourselves unstained from the world. At uh, the end of, middle of chapter 3, he talks about worldly wisdom and earthly wisdom versus godly wisdom. Chapter 4, he talks about our relationship with the world. Verse 4, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And then he talks about how a relationship with the world, at least the evil part of the world, um, can influence us and why it should. So he's going to talk about how to live holy lives. So he's setting us up for what's to come. But he's really then to summing up everything he's been saying to us. Summing up everything he's been been saying to us. Um, And really answering, dealing with this question that's arisen from verse 21. Where he says that we're to receive with meekness the implanted uh, word of God which is able. The implanted word which is able to save uh, our souls. And remember we've talked about this. We said this implanted word is the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jeremiah had that God would put his word within us It essentially give us a new inclination towards him that he's put his word in our hearts and minds. So he's implanted it. He's implanted it in such a way that, that we're now attracted to it so that when this word comes to us, it resonates with the word that's in us. Or we can even say more directly, when Jesus is revealed to us, uh, it resonates with us. Of course, yes, of course. Because now that inclination, his implanted word, is in us. So that we encounter the living word, Jesus. Yes, when we hear this word, yes, we're no longer contrary to it. And, and so he says then, here's the deal. We need to learn to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And while that expresses a good thing amongst us, in meekness, we listen to one another well as opposed to talk all the time. And when we're slow to speak and, and we're slow to anger. Because when we get angry in that way, we stop listening. But that's also to, to define our relationship with God in his word. With meekness, we're to listen to it. We're to be quick to listen to his word. Slow to spout our opinions. But as we're listening and meditating, then what we hear from him then influences what we speak. And we're slow to take issue with the things of God, you see. In fact, we don't. We submit ourselves to them. So James gives us a couple of illustrations. Really clear. The first one he says, there's a man who looks in the mirror and mirrors reflect. Mirrors tell us who we are. We look in the mirror to see ourselves, to fix it, if you will. And he says, he says, don't be like a, a person, a man who looks in a mirror and sees what's there. And then forgets what's there and then goes out. That's silly. People look at you and go, I don't think they looked in the mirror this morning. Right? And and, and we get what he's saying. He's saying, well, when we look into the word, which is a mirror, it shows us who we are. We shouldn't just look into it and forget what we see and leave. That'd be silly. Just as silly as a person who looks in a mirror and forgets what they see and leaves. We should look into the word and, and do it. But then he... Changes spins that illustration, remember? And he said, it doesn't say look into the word, but he says look into the perfect law, the law of liberty. We say, what way is this law perfect? Well, it reflects who God is and he's perfect. And it suits us. It's just exactly what we need. And it's a law that brings freedom. The Israelites should have known that. They should have known it because they got the law on Mount Sinai. This is all a review. Remember? You do, I'm sure, from last week. Uh, They got the law on Mount Sinai after they have been set free. They had been slaves. And now God brings them to Sinai and he says, here's how to live a life of freedom. Follow me. Obey me. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love each other. That's freedom. That's what you've been made for. That suits us, you see. And now when we look at this perfect law, this law of liberty, and we see it through the work of Christ, then it's... Really freedom for us. Because he's fulfilled it. He's done it. He's redeemed us. He set us free from the bondage of sin, its penalty and power. And we say, okay, now what? What's what's it like to be free? And he says, follow me. Obey me. (laughs) That's freedom, you see. And so that's what James is telling us. That's how we're supposed to live, you see. And now he's really helping to define that even more. He says, here's what that means. Control your tongue, be compassionate towards others, and live a holy life, a clean life. And then I asked, because I'm nosy, I asked, why these three? I mean, Why these? I mean, obviously, this isn't everything that a Christian does. I mean, he doesn't say read the Bible. He doesn't say gather to worship. He doesn't say receive the sacraments. I mean, all that's in the Bible, and those are things that believers would do as a... Outward expression of this inward faith. And, and what about the needy who aren't widows and orphans? I mean, someone comes to you for help and you go, are you a widow? No. Are you an orphan? No. Well, forget it. We, we know he doesn't mean that. And we get the holy life thing, but exactly what does that mean, right? Why these three things? Well, there's a couple of, of really good... Uh, Hints uh, for us uh, in the midst of these three things that he gives to us. And, 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 and hints uh, for them particularly. You know, they were a group of people. Remember, we said that this is a group of people, James writes, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And so it's likely that he's targeting Christians who had been in Jerusalem, who were forced out of Jerusalem because of their faith. After Stephen was martyred, a great persecution, Acts chapter eight and Acts chapter eleven tells us, that, that so that the believers were forced out of Jerusalem and they went all over the place. And so he's writing to them. And he's writing to them in their trials, the difficulties that they that they have. And, and specifically for them, uh, you know as well as I do what happens in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a difficulty when there's great stress. If you're in me, it isn't necessarily persecution, but it may be illness and disease. It may be a loss of a job. It may be a relational difficulty. It may be all kinds of things that come into our lives that try our faith. And we know what happens. If, if you go through a stressful time, does it ever affect the way that you talk? Do <laughs> you ever start complaining a lot? Do you ever start saying things to people after which you say that, I'm really sorry, I'm just really stressed right now? Or sometimes you just say it and then you don't even say Sorry. Because you're not. (laughs) Because you're just stressed in the middle of this situation. So it shouldn't surprise us that when he's talking to a group of people going through this stressful situation of trials, that he would raise this issue of what what do you say and how do you say it? And and another thing that happens when we're going through stress and trials is we have a tendency to get increasingly self-focused. All I can see is my issue. But James is saying, open your eyes. You're with a whole group of refugees and you're spread out all, all over the place. There are some among you more needy than even you. In that culture, there are widows who have no one to take care of. There's no social programs. There's 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 nothing for them to rely upon. They have no husband, no family. Here they are, they're widowed. That's that's it. They have no one to go to. And he says, e- they're part of you. Take care of one another. Even in the midst of this big trial that you're all experiencing one way, shape, or form, there are those Don't just put your eyes upon you. That happens in the midst of trials. And orphans, these are kids that are running around. They have absolutely no one. They're completely helpless and hopeless. And so he says to them, even though you're going through this trial, be compassionate. And then, you know, when difficulties come, how easy it is for all of us, and for them as well, I suspect, to compromise our faith so that life will go easier for us. Oh, if if I only give in here, if I only give in there, uh, then life would go easier. I, I could lie on this resume and get a job. And I really need a job. God wants me to have a job. That would be better if I did that. Or I could speak ill of someone else. So that would make my situation better. I could... and, and then just the stress. We know what happens in times of stress where all kinds of worldly coping mechanisms come into play, not the coping mechanisms that the Lord gives us of trusting him and meditating upon him and being in fellowship and worship and all of that, but these various coping mechanisms with pills or alcohol. We know that porn use increases when people, men especially, are stressed. And so all of these... So you can only imagine why he picked these three. I mean, it would make sense that we know that when you're going through trials... You need a word about your tongue. You need a word about being compassionate to others. You need a word about staying away from the world's way of solving your problems. But there's even something else. You'll notice in verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. Deceives his heart. See What's on James' mind is... Our hearts. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that he goes right away to the tongue, to what we say. His big brother Jesus, as we read before our time of confession, said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, so James is thinking about something related to one's heart, just not these outward acts, but, but what really comes from the heart. He would very naturally think of what Jesus said. And Jesus said, you know, our, our mouths give us away. They, 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 they reveal what's inside. Just like a, a tree. If the, if the, if the tree is bad, the fruit will be bad. If the heart's bad, the, the speech will be bad. And he said, but remember, you've now been redeemed. You've been cleansed. It should affect the way that you it should affect your heart. Thus, it should affect the way that you speak, the way that you talk about these things. It should affect your heart. You remember, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago with the prophet Isaiah, when he was in the temple and he saw the Lord high and lifted up. What did he, what did he say when he saw himself in reflection, when he saw himself in the context of the holiness of God? He said, woe is me, I'm coming undone. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. That's an odd thing to say. It's like, well, then go wash them. But his point wasn't that just my lips are unclean. His point was everything that comes out of me is unclean. And I have no hope because I live among a people of unclean lips. We're all unclean. And and, and that's the sense. So when James begins to think about the heart, he begins to think about what comes out of us. But that's not the only thing that he thinks about. Verse 27, it says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. He's thinking about God, the Father. Thus, he's thinking about the people to whom he writes and to us as the children of our heavenly Father. That, That he's our Father, we're related, we're his kids. And in the same way, like father, like son, like child, like son, we're to resemble our father, so what's he like? Now, I know that for many people, the world in which we live, the word father isn't a, isn't a happy one. It's not a friendly one. Um, but God is presented to us as father. So we have to begin to think of father isn't a friendly image to us. We have to begin to think of what was I missing? What am I missing from father earthly, and understand that Father Heavenly fills all of that, whether it be safety or protection or provision, whether it be nurture or compassion or love, whether it be understanding and care, Heavenly Father is all of that. And so when we think, God our Father, and we're to resemble Him, we're to be like Him, we're to be like the Heavenly Father, like our Heavenly Father, the question is, what's He like? So if we go back to verse 18 of James 1, we read this, of his own will, that is God's, our Father, of his own will, he brought forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Well, James is just simply unpacking that sentence in these two. He's talking about God, our Father. What's true of him? Well, he speaks his word. What does his word do? When God speaks his word Brings life. At creation, he spoke. What happened? Boom. There was life, you see. He's, his word brings life. Our words are to bring life, not to destroy. Even when God speaks judgment, he does it because he's blessing that which is really true. That which is really life. And so he says, no. If we're going to be like God. And we speak As God speaks, then our words too aren't to destroy, but they're to bring life. Right? In Ephesians in chapter four, the apostle writes this, verse 29. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Now, corrupting talk, to corrupt is to spoil something. Right? To make it rotten. That's what corruption does eventually. And so he says, listen, we're, we're, we're not to have anything come out of our mouths that corrupts, that spoils, that, that brings something that's rotten, that in a sense really destroys the life of it. He said, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We of all people know that when God speaks, we receive life and grace. And if we're to be like him, then we always have to keep in our minds. This relationship that I have with him, this spirituality that I profess because the Holy Spirit is in me, should show itself in a particular manner, particularly with how I speak, even in the midst of trials. Even in the midst of difficulties, you see even when times are worse for us, we should be most conscious of what's coming out of us. That even then, we speak life, not corruption, you see. Words that build up. Because James is very honest about this thing between our lips and in our mouths, this tongue of ours. Verse 6 of James chapter 3, he says, the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness that is the untamed one, the unbridled one. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. We go, what hope have we? Well, of course, we always have hope because we can't tame it, but God can. And that's James' point. If he lives within us, if it's really true about us, and in fact, it should be tameable by the Spirit of God at work within us. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same outcome, blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does the spring pour uh, pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. He says, our, our speech should be like God, you see, in the sense that it builds people up. It doesn't corrupt, it doesn't bring rottenness in them. And so he says, if this is really true of us, then it should affect how and what we say. And if it doesn't, we're just deceived. It really should. And then he goes on and he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions. That's just like God, isn't it? Notice in verse 18, he says, of his own will, he brought us forth. Yes, by his word he gave us life. But by his own will. By his own will, he did this. In other words, he came to the likes of you and me. We are the spiritual equivalent of widows and orphans. I mean, widows and orphans in the day that James wrote in the days of Jesus, again, as we said, were the most vulnerable people. They were the most helpless and hopeless. They had nothing to commend themselves at all. They were just simply people who could only get by putting out their hand. That was it. They, and, and, and we're the spiritual equivalent of that. That was Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's us. We're the widows and orphans. And by his own will, by God's will, he was compassionate to the likes of you and me. We had nothing. Absolutely. In fact, it wasn't that we had nothing. Everything we had was wrong. It was negative. And yet still he showed his compassion upon us when we were running from him. He ran faster, got ahead and grabbed us. By his own will, if people want to know what the will of God is, what is he really like? He's the God who saves. He's the God who saves. He's the God who's compassionate. In fact, when the psalmist writes of God in Psalm, somewhere, Psalm 68 and verse 5, left-hand page top. There we go. Psalm 68, 5. Here's how the psalmist describes God. He's the father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. That's who God is. He's the one who comes to the most vulnerable. And we of all people should know that because spiritually we're the most vulnerable. We have nothing. And he came to us by his own will. So I'm going to do that. That's just like God. And he says, you are to be that way too. You're to care for the most hopeless and helpless among you. In those situations. Remember, there was a parable that Jesus told. And he told about uh, those that we should, meaning he did, invite uh, to this great uh, uh, banquet, if you will. And, um, he, he says that the, the people should, that should be invited uh, to this banquet are, are not the ones who can give you thanks, but in fact, the poor uh, and the needy. Uh, he says you should invite those people. Luke chapter 14 and verse 12. Jesus said, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return to be re- so that you can be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus isn't saying never invite your friends for dinner or that. Right? We get what he's saying. He invited us. He invited us. We can't repay him. And so he says, you should invite people like you into your life. You should go to people like you. Well, who are they? The poor and needy, the ones who need. Don't shy away from, from anybody if they're, quote-unquote, below you in any sort of sense. Why? Because who are you? I invited you. And you would say, well, who am I? Uh, you're the poor and the crippled and the needy or whatever. And I invited you. I invited the ones who can never repay. <laughs> so that's who you are. You remember another occasion. There was a, 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 Jesus came upon a situation that uh, um, where there was a, a, a great commotion. And he looked and what was happening was that there was a widow who was burying her son. He had died. It was in a place called Nain. Need a new PR director for their city. But a place called Nain. And there, there she was. And, 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 and Jesus sucked had compassion upon her. And again, this is freaky. I mean, we need to really think about this. This man, young man, this woman's son, she was a widow. He was dead. And Jesus brought him back to life. Think about it. Last funeral you attended, if that would have happened, what you would have thought, right? It happened. And so then Jesus said, Give this man back to his mother. She was a widow. She had no hope other than her son being there um, with them, with her, to provide for her. So he was caring for the widow. And you know what the people said in response to that? The people said, oh, the great prophet has come. And then they said, God has visited us. Uh, visited us? James says, visit Orphans and widows in their time of need. Why? Because that's what God does. God visits the poor and needy. God visits the spiritually poor and needy. We know that. And we then should too. To be like him. And then James goes on and he said we should live unstained uh, uh, by the from the world. We should live holy lives. And again, if I go back to verse 18, we read, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The first fruits in the offering, the Old Testament, were set apart. They were what was gathered first. And it was to be a sign that God would provide more that he had promised to provide. And this was kind of his little uh, down payment, if you will. See, I told you so. And it was to be set apart for God as holy. And so if we're his first fruits, then he sets us apart. Why? That we would be holy. If there's any verse from the book of Leviticus that you might ever remember, it's... Be holy, for I am holy. We're to be like God. We're to follow his wisdom, James chapter 3. We're not to be friends with the world in the sense that we follow the world's ways. But we're to set ourselves apart. And we're to be pure. See, the reason James has all of these on his mind is because he has God on his mind and he has God on his mind as our father. And he said, we should resemble him. We should be like him, God, our father. And it was with his word that he gave us life. We should speak in such a way that doesn't corrupt, but that which builds up. And by his own will, his compassion towards us, Spiritually poor and needy, He came to us to give life. Thus, we should tend to all those, especially in our midst and even outside, who are poor and needy, so that they'll know who God is. They'll know what God is like. Oh, God visits the poor and needy. And we should be holy because He is. Holy. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples, and after giving thanks, he broke the bread and he gave it to them, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup, and again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And what we're declaring is this, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the scripture says that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But those who did receive him, to those who believed upon his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Not by human will or natural descent, but by his will. He brought us forth. So you see, as we come to this table, we're to recognize that we are in the very presence of Jesus. Now, we're always in the presence of Jesus, especially as believers. But there are moments and times that he sets apart so that we would recognize it, know it, and say, you're in the presence of Jesus. Now, this bread and juice doesn't change. It's not the corporal presence of Jesus, but it's the spiritual presence of Jesus. He's here. See. And what do we to know? What do we to think? Well, he is God's word. And what did he do? He brought us life. And why did he bring us life? So that we could live a holy life before the Lord. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me and for us, that you would be with us. That you would take this bread and this juice in such a way, set it apart, that we would know that we are in the very presence of Jesus. Father, fill us with that awareness and know that he's your, the word. And he came and dwelt among us in such a way that he bought us. And by your Spirit, you have brought us to yourself. We who were dead in trespasses and sins, by your word now have life. And here we are, God. We who were once hopeless and helpless, are now children of God and have all that we need. We, who were once stained by the world and its effects to such a degree that we hardly looked human, now have been cleansed so that we may walk in newness and holiness of life. So please, I pray that as we come to this table, you would grant us assurance of that, what you've done, and you would grant us grace as we walk from this table, still in Jesus, he with us, we with him, and that we would speak that which builds up. That we would bless the lives of those who are in need. And we would live in a way that is pleasing to you. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.